I was going to hum the video intro. Do 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 do. No, no, forget it. Alrighty. Don't know if you've ever stared at one of these. It's a blank sheet of paper, in case you're wondering. I stare at these often, either a physical one or more often the representation of this on my computer screen. As I wonder how on earth to start a sermon, or a letter, or an email. I don't know if you ever like that. When you have a report to write for work and you sit down to begin it, and you know what you want to say, but how are you going to start that? And you kind of stare at this blank screen or look at this blank sheet, and you, you just don't quite know how to, how to get underway. Or maybe you feel like that when you're writing an essay for, uh, for school. And you know what you meant to write about, you know what you need to include in it to, to get the grades you want, but you sit there and, and it's just, how, you, how do you begin, how do you start off, how do you get the ball rolling? Or maybe you feel like that when you have to respond to an email that you've received and you want to work out how to respond to that email well, or, or maybe write one that's a little bit more difficult to write. Or maybe you're, you've sat in front of, of a small card and you're actually going to hand write something, which doesn't happen very often, but you want to you send a, a card of encouragement or comfort to someone about something. And you, and you, you write their name or you, you insert the person's email address on the email and, and then you just kind of go, what do I say? You know, how, how am I going to start this off? What do I, what do I want to kick off with to kind of really... Uh, speak to, to someone's heart or to, to explain where I want to go in this essay or report or, or whatever it is. And I've sometimes wondered whether some of the writers of the Bible felt like that. You know, did John or Mark, when they were going to write a gospel about Jesus, or did David, when he was wanting to compose a psalm to God of praise or of mourning, or, 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 the, or the, the apostles writing letters or the prophets writing down their oracles, did they ever sit there and kind of pull out a fresh new scroll and sit there with a quill in their hand and go, you know, I know what I want to say. I know, I know the key things I want to get across. or I know what I want to praise God for in the psalm, but I don't know how to start. And I've been wondering that this week as we jump into First Peter again, which is the series we started last week. Under this theme of love right where we are, we've looked at Jonah this, this year, and then we did this series around prayer, asking God to open our, our eyes and hearts and, and so on. And now we've jumped into our third key series for the year in a New Testament letter called First Peter. And if you've got your Bible, I'd love you to open that, whether you're here at Botany or watching at Hastings or in Nepal or, or, or elsewhere, London or US, wherever you are. Um, Love you to come with me to First Peter, but I've been wondering, we looked at the opening lines uh, of, of this uh, beautiful letter that I think almost more than any other part of the, the Bible helps us understand how we love right where we are. 
And we saw the intro to the letter that Peter wrote last week, which is kind of like the, the, you know, the email address and the, the subject line and stuff. You know, he wrote, Peter, an apostle of God, to the elect exiles scattered through all these provinces and what we now call Turkey. Uh, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And then I wonder if Peter just sat there and went, you know, he knows what he wants to say. He knows he wants to talk to these uh, Gentile, mainly Gentile Christians who feel like exiles, feel like they're, they're strangers in their own country. They feel marginalized and pushed to the side and maybe ridiculed a bit because of their faith in Jesus. Um, persecution may actually become a reality for many of them as well. And so he wants to write and encourage them. That's what he's going to say at the end of the letter. And he wants to encourage them that even while they feel on the outer and pushed to the margins, they're actually elect, they're chosen and loved by God. And so I think he's got a plan of what he wants to say, but I do wonder whether he just sat there and was like, what do you say first? How do you kind of get this underway? What What do you begin with? And what's interesting is that Peter begins with worship. He begins with praise. He begins with God. Because if we're going to understand our calling as exiles in this world, if we're going to understand the privileged position we're in as God's chosen and loved people, it all starts with him. And so that's where he chooses to begin. And he begins with an incredibly important word. In the beginning of verse 3, if you've got it open there in front of you, the word is praise. Praise God, he says. In fact, he, he writes it more as a Jewish prayer. He begins it this way. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually a way that the Jewish people would pray. The word that we translate, uh, the NIV at least has translated into English as praise, could be translated also blessed. And it's the similar way that, um, that Paul started a couple of his letters. For example, Ephesians 1, Paul started the main part of that letter, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is identical to what Peter does here, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Peter uses the same phrase, but a different reason. Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has given us new birth. And what both Peter and Paul are doing as they begin their letters is they are praying a prayer of, of worship, of praise and thanksgiving to God. It's, um, it's very Jewish. Um, a number of times, for example, in the Psalms, they'll, they'll do the same thing. Praise be to Yahweh, for he's heard my cry for mercy. Um, It means that God is blessed, or God is to be thanked, or God is to be praised for what he has done. Even today, Jewish people, as they pray to God, will pray something like, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God. It's exactly the same word. God, you're to be blessed, or you're to be praised because of who you are and what you've done. And what Peter specifically praises God for here is for his salvation. Notice that in the next line of verse 3. Uh, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has given us new birth. A couple of really important phrases there that I've highlighted in yellow. The idea of a new birth is picking up uh, an idea that Jesus actually talked about um, to a Jewish leader called Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the idea of being born again. 
And it's a phrase that suggests that to come to faith in Jesus, to become his follower, means such a radical change in us, it's like we are born into a brand new family as a a brand new creature. And so just as we were born into our family of origin and the the ethnic uh, grouping that that family is part of, just as we were born into a particular culture and country in the world and a socioeconomic position and everything else, we're born into that. So as we come to faith, when we trust in Jesus at that moment, the Spirit of God almost gives birth to us again, and we become a whole new creature Um, now a follower of God who's now part of his family with all of the privileges that that carries. And because we're born again into God's family, we celebrate that because it's by his great mercy. You know, you really didn't do much when you were first born in a physical sense by your mum. You just arrived. And there's a sense in which it's the same spiritually. When you're born again, it's actually a work that the Spirit does in you. We respond to him by faith, but really it's what God has done in his mercy and in his grace to draw you into a relationship with him. And uh, that's what Peter is celebrating at the very beginning here. As he kicks this letter off, and as he wants these people he's writing to who feel marginalized and pushed to the side, he wants them to know how chosen and how loved they are. And he says, can we just start off by praising God for the fact that he has chosen us and that we are loved and that he has saved us and given us a whole new birth. It's exactly uh, the same kind of idea that that Paul wrote to to another pastor called Titus. uh, When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, because of his grace. And he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's what God has done. And so what uh, Peter wants us to do is as he begins to explain to these people who feel marginalized, as he begins to explain to them what it means to be chosen by God and loved by God through Jesus, by his grace and his mercy, he wants to begin by calling us to praise God for our salvation and to reflect on that salvation. And what he's going to do uh, through this passage is he's going to invite us to reflect on three key phases, three perspectives of our salvation, the past, the present, and the future, which is what I've got up on stage here. Now, what you need to understand is that this passage, which we're looking at today, begins in verse 3 and runs through to verse end of verse 12. So it's 10 verses long, and in the original Greek language that Peter wrote in, it is one sentence. In fact, I was going to try this morning and read it in one breath for you. And it doesn't work. At least not for me. And the issue is that when you try and read it all as one sentence, in our English translations, it gets broken up into six or eight different sentences so that we can understand it and we don't get lost. But when you dive into this passage and try and understand this, what you find is Peter writes so brilliantly, he packs so much into this one sentence, but he does it by using a series of clauses, and then they have some subsequent subclauses which have also other descriptive sub-subclauses that explain those subclauses, and then he goes into a few digressions that bring more meaning to the sub-subclauses to explain the subclauses to really help us understand the clauses of this one sentence that he wants us to get. And that's really how it feels when you try and read this. 
we had our, our young adults community group drive on Wednesday night and I uh, divided this passage up into the three sections of past, present and future and gave, uh, divided them into three groups and gave uh, one group each of these sections and said, you dive in and you explain it, you dive in together as a group, figure out what, what, what Peter meant in that section or this section and then you have to explain it to the group. Uh, when you come back in, and then that'll help me preach it on Sunday. (laughs) And the feeling from all three groups was, oh my goodness, what is Peter saying? Because it's so twisted and convoluted with all these sub-clauses and sub-sub-clauses and descriptive phrases, it's really hard to get your head around it, and it feels like you're lost in a forest, and it's so dense, and there's branches everywhere and trees all over the place that you, you can't honestly see the forest for the trees. And so I've struggled today to know how on earth are we going to get a gist in what Peter says in one sentence about how amazing our salvation is. So I'm going to give it my best shot, and you can pray for me. (laughs) Right, the key to this, the key to this is these five words. What we have to understand is that everything else that Peter says is coming back to this call. Praise be to God for the salvation he's given us. And everything he's writing is calling us to do this. So at the end of this message, if you don't feel like you want to praise him and thank him for what he's done, then I've failed and we've missed it. And what he's going to do is he's going to use the past and the present and the future to give us three reasons why we should praise God. Good so far? Okay. But what he does is he doesn't do what we think he should do. The natural order for us that he should give these reasons is past, present, future. That's the way our logical minds work. But that isn't how Peter operates. Instead, Peter comes to the future. And Peter begins with the future that God has for us. So for Peter, when he's talking about the salvation we've been given that we should praise God for, what he really wants to emphasize is our future hope. And that's what we see in the rest of verses 3 and then 4 and 5. So if you've got 1 Peter open in front of you, have a look at it as I read. 1 Peter 1, I'm going to start from the beginning just so we get the flow of this from verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. See what I mean about how dense it is? There's so many words and so many explanations and so much description, it's hard to kind of get your head completely around what he's saying. But what he's trying to say is this. The first reason we should praise God is because in the future, we have an eternal hope that cannot be lost. That's what he's saying. We have this incredible hope, this wonderful destiny, this amazing future in Jesus, and we can't lose that. And the way he's going to explain that for us is he's going to use three phrases through those three verses using the little word into so if you're, uh, if you're into marking your Bible or you're using an app that you can highlight or you've got the passage open in your journal, then I invite you to circle a, a key word here in this opening section. It's the little word into. 
And three times, Peter uses this word into to describe the future we have if we've trusted in Jesus and we've been born again. Describing our future. And he says, to begin with, he says, we've been born again, we have the new birth. In verse 3 it says, into a living hope. We've been born, when we're looking at our future, we've been born into a living hope. Now, the word hope is interesting. Uh, In our world today, hope means something completely different to what the biblical authors mean. In our world today, we mean hope as a wish. Hope is something we, we dream about and we wish would happen, but there's no degree of certainty that it will happen. So we could wish that it's going to stop raining today. We could wish that the sun would come out and it would reach a balmy 25 degrees um, by, by midday. We could uh, wish that there'd be no major traffic problems going to work tomorrow. We could wish that our teenager's bedroom was clean by the end of the day. We could wish to win lotto. We could wish for all kinds of things. And that's what we hope for. That's what the way that the word hope is used in our world today. Gee, I hope the sun would come out and it's a balmy 25. I hope my teenager's room is clean. I hope that I win lotto. I hope the Warriors can win more than one game in a row as the season continues. Whatever it is you hope for, that's how we use the word hope in our world today. It's a wish that has no degree of certainty. In the Bible, when the biblical authors use the word hope, it is not a wish. It's a promise. And it's a promise that is guaranteed. It's completely different to how we use the word hope. And so in some ways, we've got to reorient entirely how we understand the word when we find it in the Bible. Because Peter isn't saying we've been birthed into a living wish that we hope will come true. Now he's been saying we've been born again if we've trusted in Jesus into this living promise that is certain to come true. And the reason it is certain is because it is based on the fact that Jesus is alive. It's a living promise because it's from a living Savior. And because Jesus is alive, we can guarantee, we've got a certainty about what's going to happen in the future. So you see this, for example, when we face death. Um, Paul, writing to the little church in a place called Thessalonica, said, Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind or have no hope, who have no hope. If you go to the funeral of someone who doesn't have a belief in Jesus, there's a real sense of hopelessness to it. You know, we can celebrate someone's life and, and, and the good person that they were to a degree, um, but there's a sense in which there's no certainty And people in our world, depending on the worldview they have, they may have a wish that that maybe there's a heaven. They may wish that there is some kind of afterlife. They may be hoping that they've done enough to get by. But when you go to the funeral of someone who dies as a Christian, there's a certainty about what's coming next. And that's what the hope is of the Christian faith. So that when we grieve someone who we've lost in Christ... Uh, For example, my sister-in-law in in Sydney, married to my older brother, just lost her mum last week. Or or Stephen and Candy Yao in our church uh, lost two different parents, one each, uh, in Hong Kong in the last few months. Or Kathy Downey Parish just lost her dad in the last month. 
and you go to those funerals of people who know Jesus and love Jesus, we still grieve. That's not what Paul says. But we grieve with hope. Because there's not the sense of, gee, I wish, I hope, maybe. There's a sense of, this is goodbye for now, but we're going to see them again because, because we have hope. And the reason we have hope, Paul says in the next verse, is because we believe Jesus died and rose again. So because Jesus rose from the dead and has defeated death, we have a sure hope in the Christian life. We believe that there is this promise that is watertight. That's the first thing, uh, the first thing in the future that we are to celebrate. But then secondly, in verse 4, uh, Peter says something else. We've been born, we've been given the new birth into a living hope, but then in verse 4, also into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. An inheritance, uh, generally in our world, is a gift that you receive normally as a family member on the death of someone you love. But it's a share in the investments or the assets of the family. And in the Christian sense, the word inheritance describes the share we have of God's kingdom and all that God has and the riches of, of him as the creator of the world. And this investment is being kept safe in heaven. That's the idea of what Peter is saying with these three words. They never perish or spoil or fade, which I think comes from Jesus' description of laying out for ourselves treasure in heaven where rust can't destroy and, and moths can't get in and eat and thieves can't break in and steal. And it's describing our future both as a, a, a living hope, a, a promise that's watertight, but also an investment that is being kept safe for us. And then the third thing that Peter says in verse 5, there's a third into, and the NIV doesn't actually translate it as well as I wish they did. Because in the Greek text, in each verse, there's an into. And in verse 5, it's into the salvation that's ready to be revealed at the last time. So the third thing that Peter says we have in our future is a future salvation when Jesus is revealed, and the comment he makes about that in the beginning part of verse 5 is that we are being shielded through faith by God's power until that salvation is revealed. So in other words, we are a people who are protected by God. So in verse 4, Peter's saying, we've got this living hope that's like this inheritance in the future, and God's guarding that inheritance for us so that nothing can go wrong with it. But then in verse 5, he's saying, but he's also guarding you and me as we journey to get that inheritance sometime in the future. So that's guarded, but we're guarded as well. So I don't know if this analogy is going to work, but I'm going to try. Imagine, because I'm loaded with money, imagine that I said to you, I am going to gift each of you the dream holiday of your dreams that you've always hoped for. Ten years from now, I am going to give you an all-expenses holiday to wherever it is you want to go in the world. Now, I don't know about you, but here's me. <laughs> I, I, I just Googled photo beach resort, and that's what I got. I, I didn't actually even know where that is, but I don't care where it is. That's where I'd be going. Now, I don't know what your destination is in mind, but I want you to think about that. I'm going to send you ten years from now on an amazing holiday to wherever it is that you want to go. Now, the reality is, between now and then, in these next 10 years, all kinds of things could go wrong. And so if we're wise, either me or you, one of us needs to buy travel insurance to make sure that we've got this thing covered. 
Because in the next 10 years, all kinds of things could go wrong. Uh, the airline or the, 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 the cruise liner or whatever it is could go bankrupt. And so there's no way you're even going to get near this place. Or, or maybe the airline's going to be fine, but in the next 10 years, the, the, the resort could go bankrupt or... Or, um, or a tsunami could hit it and wipe it out, or global warming could cause sea levels to rise and it gets swamped. All kinds of things could happen. Or the airline's fine and the resort's fine, but in the next 10 years, all kinds of things could go wrong with you. I mean, you know, you could have an accident or you could, you know, be in a wheelchair, you could die, you don't even get to go. And so we need travel insurance to cover all of those kinds of things. What Peter is saying is that we have an amazing future, an eternal hope, that is better than any resort holiday we can imagine. And we don't need travel insurance. Because it's guaranteed by God. You and I, if we are followers of Jesus, we are going to get to this eternal home because of Jesus, because he's alive. He's our ticket. And there's no way that ticket is ever going to fail because he has conquered death and he is alive forever and you don't need insurance to cover the ticket because your ticket is Jesus. Not only that, you don't need insurance to cover the resort called heaven because that's guaranteed and God is keeping that safe for us in heaven. So the ticket is sweet and the resort is sweet and you're sweet because God's guarding you on your way there. In other words, this eternity, this future that God has in store for us is so amazing because it's guaranteed to us. We don't need any kind of insurance to get there because we're getting there through the grace and mercy of God expressed through Jesus. And the ticket is Jesus and he's guaranteed and the destination is heaven and and the new earth and that's guaranteed and you and I are protected by God and we're guaranteed and this thing called eternity and our future is awesome. And so Peter says, let's praise him because that's amazing. And if you don't like my analogy of heaven as a resort, I'm quoting C.S. Lewis. Uh, One of our young adults reminded me of this passage uh, on Wednesday night. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because they can't imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. See, he's talking about a resort. And he's right. In our lives today, we can get so caught up in the comfort of the world we are in, especially as believers in the West. We get so caught up with our lives in the here and now and our careers and our little toys and all the things that satisfy us, we don't really understand that compared to what God has for us in the future, we're making mud pies in the slum. And Peter wants his original readers to understand and he wants you and I reading it thousands of years later to understand. We should praise God because what he has in store for us in the future is unbelievable. We have an eternal hope that can't be lost. So we should praise him. So far, so good? Secondly, he says, not only the future, but we should praise God for their salvation because what it gives us in the present. Have a look at verses 6 to 9. Let me read them for you. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that 
the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls." See, again, it's another, like, dense-as-paragraph full of all these... Dis- so, so what is Peter talking about? Well, he's switched to the present, hasn't he? And what he's describing in these verses is the reality of how hard life can be at times. That we suffer, he says in verse 6, various trials. That, that they're only for a little while compared to what's coming in heaven, but, you know, that's what we suffer. And we suffer all kinds of trials, And what he says in verse 7 then is that these trials prove our faith in him. That we're being tested like gold does, but but our faith survives far better than gold. And the result of that is that God is glorified. Now he's saying all of this about the present reality that we find ourselves in and the difficulties and trials of life here. But that is not the main point of these verses. The main verse, the main verb, sorry, is at the very beginning of verse 6. In all this, which he means all that he's written about already, in all this, he says, you greatly rejoice. This is a, um, it's one of the many words that the New Testament uses for joy. But it's a word that means joy or rejoice exceedingly. The NIV does a nice job here of translating it. You greatly rejoice. And what Peter is saying here is that we should praise God for our salvation, not only because we've got an eternal hope, but because in the present we have a glorious joy that sustains us through hardship. That no matter what the trials are in life, no matter what difficulties we're facing, whether we've got financial issues or whether we've got relational breakdowns or whether we're struggling with health problems, Because God has this amazing future for us, it helps fill us with this amazing, glorious, inexpressible joy in the here and now. Now again, we struggle with this. The same as the future. The world we live in uses the word hope so differently than the way the Bible does. It's the same with the word joy. And what happens in our world today is we confuse the concepts of happiness and joy. And they are not the same things. Happiness is our response to the circumstances around us. So one author that I was reading this week, Stephen Lawson, said joy is entirely different from happiness. He says happiness comes from the Latin word fortuna. When my fortunes are good, then fortuna or happiness rises high. Conversely, when my fortunes go down, happiness drops through the floor. Happiness, he says, is fleeting, temporary, and fragile. Uh, Another pastor that I was reading, a Puerto Rican guy called Juan Sanchez, said, if our happiness is rooted in financial security, it'll rise and fall on the amount of money we have. If it's on a relationship, it'll rise and fall on the basis of how that person responds to us. If our happiness depends on social standing, it rises and falls on whether we are accepted or rejected today. If it's our circumstances, it rises and falls on whether we're having a good day or a bad day. That is how happiness works. We're like a cork in the ocean that just bobs up and down depending on on what's going on um, in our circumstances at this moment. See, happiness is an emotion. Joy is an attitude. 
Emotions are how we respond to our circumstances. Our attitude is what's happening in our heart regardless of our circumstances. And the problem is that our our emotions just rise and fall, as those uh, authors said, depending on what's going on. It's an emotion happiness that rises and falls depending on our circumstances. But joy, what, what Peter's talking about, is an attitude that simply rests in faith in Jesus, regardless of our circumstances. That's why the Bible will command us to have joy. Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, says, Rejoice! And again I tell you, rejoice! He's not telling them to be happy. He's telling them to adopt an attitude that says, No matter what happens in my life, I've got Jesus. And that gives a deep joy, even if right now I'm going through one of the saddest events of my life. See, Paul talks about this. Writing to the church in Corinth, he's talking about his own example to them. And he says, we commend ourselves to you as a servant in every way. And then he talks about these, really what are paradoxes. He says, we're sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich. We have nothing and yet we possess everything. He's talking about how paradoxical the Christian life can be. But notice what he says in yellow. He says, we can be sorrowful. We can be in the saddest moment of our lives and yet rejoicing. He's not saying we can be sad and happy at the same time. He said our emotions can be deeply sad, and yet even as we weep before God the way the Lament Psalms teach us to weep, there's still this joy in our hearts because we know there's a hope. And that's what Peter is saying here, that we should praise God because his salvation gives us in the future an eternal hope that can't be lost. And in the present, it gives us this glorious, inexpressible joy that sustains us through hardships. It's a joy, Peter says, that happens despite the hardships in verses 6 and 7. It's a joy that also sustains us despite the fact we've never even seen Jesus in verses 8 and 9. But it's a joy that we can have if we trust in him. And that takes us through anything we face in life. So Peter says, praise God. Praise God because in the future you have got this incredible thing. You don't even comprehend how good it is and you'll never lose it. And praise God because in the present, even as you're facing hard things, God gives you this glorious joy that is so amazing you can't even explain it to other people. And then finally he comes to the past. Now, we expect him, when we come to the past, we expect him to go to our past. Sal shared her story earlier up here on stage and talked about what her past was like before she came to faith in Jesus. And that's what we would expect Peter to be talking about. But Peter doesn't go to the past of his readers. He goes to the historical past. He goes actually back to the Old Testament prophets themselves. Look at verses 10 and 12 as we finish. Concerning the salvation, he says, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to the prophets that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. 
a third incredibly dense paragraph. What's he saying? Well, he's talking about the Old Testament prophets. And he's talking about them predicting the salvation that we would enjoy this side of the cross and the empty tomb, this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he talks about that in verse 10, you notice, the prophets spoke of the grace that was to come to you. And so what Peter is saying is that we should praise God for both the eternal hope we have in the future and the amazing joy we have in the present, but also this amazing grace. And he's going back to the past to talk about this grace. What he says is the prophets, they looked ahead and they foretold what it would be like to live with this grace. Grace is this idea that we can have a relationship with God that is not based on what we do. It is not based on our performance. It is not based on the fact we deserve it. It is based on God's character and his love that is given to people who don't deserve it, like the prodigal son who'd gone running away and spent all the money and was still welcomed home by a father who loved him and ran to embrace him. That's grace. I love this description that Paul gives, that he has saved us and called us to a holy life not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ, who's destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospels. That is the grace of God. And what Peter is saying is that is what the prophets predicted. But that's only a little subclause, Because the main point of verse 10 is that the prophets, here we go, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to work out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ was pointing them. What he means is this. Isaiah predicted that Jesus the Messiah would come. So did Jeremiah and Zechariah and Hosea and all those guys that you read about in the Old Testament who wrote down prophecies the Spirit gave them about the Messiah who would come. But they couldn't get their minds around everything they were writing. They faithfully recorded what the Spirit gave to them, but they couldn't work it out. Because on one point in his, in his book, Isaiah writes that the Messiah is going to come and like a servant is going to be killed for his sheep. But at another part, the Messiah is going to come as a conquering king and conquer the worlds and all nations will come to him. And Isaiah, Peter's saying faithfully wrote down these promises and prophecies about what was going to happen without a clue on how this was going to work out. Jeremiah predicted that a new covenant's going to come and God's going to write his law on our hearts and give us his spirit. Now, did Jeremiah understand fully how that would work? No. That's what Peter's saying. So in the Old Testament prophets predicted all this stuff about the coming of Jesus and what Jesus would accomplish and, and all of the whole deal that we now enjoy. But they didn't get it. They couldn't understand it. And what Peter's wanting us to understand as he goes back to the past and to those guys is do you realize how privileged you are to live this side of the first coming of Jesus Christ? Because you now understand why he came. You understand that his death was a sacrifice for our sins. 
you understand that that death was not the end of Jesus. Because three days later, he rose from the dead. And he has conquered death. And he's now returned to heaven where he's been exalted. And he's going to come again as the conquering king. We now get that. And we now understand that through Jesus and his death and resurrection, we can be brought into a relationship with God, even though we don't deserve it and aren't holy and can't do anything to earn it, but it's simply by his grace. And that comes to us through Jesus. And Isaiah and Jeremiah had no idea how that would work. And your theology is more complete than theirs. That's what Peter's saying. Do you realize how privileged you are to be living when you are? To understand what you understand. And not only to understand it, but to actually receive it. That's what the little afterthought at the very end of verse 12 is about. It's almost a final little line. Peter just chucks in at the end. You notice it? End of verse 12. Even angels long to look into these things. He's saying, you know what? The angels try to peer into your life and your salvation. Because angels never experience the grace of God. Angels have either always chosen to follow God and obey him, or they rebelled with Satan and fell and have become demons. Angels who continue to follow God have never failed him, and they don't need forgiveness. Fallen angels, demons who have rebelled, will never have the opportunity to repent and be saved. Jesus didn't die for an angel. He died for you and me. What Peter is saying is that the angels in heaven, they long to understand what it means to be a recipient of grace. They long to understand what it would feel like to know that you are chosen and loved by God even though you don't deserve it. And that no matter how much you stuff it up, he will continue to love you and embrace you and call you. The angels would love to know what that feels like. To know that all of your mistakes and failures are washed away and have been taken care of by Jesus. The angels wish they could know that. The prophets wish they could understand that. And Peter is saying... That's you. That's what you get to live. That's the privilege you have. And he comes to the past and says, we have an amazing grace that the angels cannot experience and the prophets could never fathom, but that's what God has done for you. So praise him. That's Peter's point. Praise God. Because in Christ... He's given us an eternal hope in the future that can't be lost. He's given us a glorious joy in the present that sustains us through hardship. And he's given us an amazing grace that those in the past longed for but never experienced the way we do. Bottom line, we've been chosen for an unbelievable destiny. We have been given an incredible salvation. So Peter says, praise him. Give him glory. Worship him. Respond to him. Thank him. Live for him. Because what you and I have been given is amazing. The problem is, we don't really believe it. The problem is, we so easily forget. 
The problem is that our life often isn't about praise. How many moments of praise did you have in this past week? Whereas you thought about the amazing grace that God's poured into your life or the amazing joy that you experience in spite of how hard things can be or this incredible future that's better than any resort I could send you to. How often have you thought about that this past week and praised him? What's the likelihood that this Wednesday morning when you roll out of bed and it's stinking cold and you fight traffic and the coffee machine isn't working, what are the chances are that you're going to praise him through Wednesday? See, the reality is we don't live in light of what Peter is saying. And there's a few reasons for that. One reason is that none of this might be true of you. Because what Peter is saying is that this is true for those who have been given new birth. And if you've never trusted in Jesus, if you've never committed your life to him, then you don't experience any of this at all. And so my invitation to you, if you're sitting here at Botany, if you're watching in Hastings, if you're listening in your car, if you're sitting in London or wherever, and you've never actually taken the step of, of confessing your brokenness and sin and failure and saying, I'm choosing to trust in Jesus as the one who paid for my sins and rose again and offers me all this, I invite you to do that now. Because what you will find is you are given all of this when you trust him. But for those of us who have done that, I think there's a few reasons why we still struggle to praise him. I think we struggle to praise him for our future because we're far too comfortable here. Especially in the Western world. We have got so many toys and so many comforts and so many distractions that we think that we've pretty much got it all now and life is sweet. And C.S. Lewis is right. We are making mud pies in a slum compared to what God has for us. And we need to embrace so much more the wonder of the eternal hope that can never be lost that he promises. For others of us, in the present, we are completely bound up with our circumstances. We don't understand joy because we are riding the happiness wave. And we are up and we are down depending on what on earth is happening in our lives and what we need to rediscover is that when we put our faith in Jesus, who we haven't even met yet, he gives us glorious joy no matter what. And some of us are quite simply blasé. We have sung Amazing Grace so many times that we don't even understand what the words mean anymore. And the thought that an angel would give both wings to swap places with us has never entered our mind. But it's true. Isaiah would have given all his teeth and Jeremiah's to understand and experience the salvation that you enjoy. And every angel would give up what they have if they could to know what it means to be loved by a God who gets to be your father. If only we understood how amazing grace really is and how glorious the joy can be and how incredible our destiny is. I think then, then, we would praise him. I'm going to invite you to praise him in a minute because the band is going to come up and lead us in song. But as they wander up, as they walk up quietly 
not wander. I just want to give you a moment of reflection. I'm trying to do this a bit more often these days. I want you to take a moment to think about your future and the present and the past. And whichever of these things, the hope or the joy or the grace, that you realise you've really forgotten and missed, I want to invite you just for a minute to talk to God. Invite him to bring that hope and joy and grace back into your life and then we're going to sit in response.